So there's this fig tree, right? And this fig tree was planted in a garden by a landowner, um, presumably because he wants figs, I would assume. And uh, this fig tree is growing up, and it's been three years, and this fig tree isn't, isn't uh, producing any fruit. And so he's walking through, the landowner is walking through the garden with his gardener, and he says, you know what? That tree's not producing any fruit. Cut it down. And the gardener says, no, 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 wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me try something first, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take on that tree as my special project. It's going to be my pet tree for the next year. I'm going to water it. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to prune it just like I should. And then if it bears fruit, great. And if it doesn't, then we'll cut it down. This was a story that Jesus told, and, and uh, it was a parable. And when, when Jesus told a parable, it was told much more like a story. It's, it's not exactly how we read it today. It's kind of hard to translate the especially in writing, it's hard to translate the, the thought and the, and the tone behind what somebody was saying. But when Jesus told these parables, it was very conversational, just like me talking to you, just like you would tell a story to your friend about what happened at work on a certain day. But the difference is the parable, as Steve Davis ex- described a couple weeks ago, the parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's something that's designed to help us as humans understand a, a, a heavenly principle. And so, in fact, oftentimes when Jesus told a parable, he'd start it with something like this. The kingdom of God is like, and then he'd go into his story, right? We see a lot of those as we read the Gospels. And it, as we see them, we want him to say something like, the kingdom of God is like a buffet where there's something for everyone. Or the kingdom of God is like a carnival where it's fun all day long, even after the sun goes down, right? But instead, Jesus tells this story. And if you have your Bibles, You can turn with me in Luke 13. Um, We're going to go verse 6 through 9. It says, Then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, Sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year, and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. The other thing that we talked about with parables is that they force us to make a choice, right? Steve Davis uh, did a great job, I thought, three weeks ago of laying this out, that parables force us to make a choice. And and typically, when we read a parable, we have to choose which character we're going to be. When we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, most of you are probably familiar with that, We have to choose if we're going to be the priest or the Levite who passes by the man who's been robbed, or if we want to be the good Samaritan who, although he's not respected by the world, does the right thing in the eyes of God. So we have to choose which character we're going to be, right? Well, in this parable, we don't get to choose which character we want to be. Um, We have to, we, the character is chosen for us. We are the fig tree. God is the owner of the land. God is the landowner. He's the one that comes through and says, cut that down. And Jesus is the gardener who intercedes for us. Jesus is the one that says, no, 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 wait. Let's give it one more chance. Let's give it one more year. I'll take special care of it. I'll give it attention. And so as we go through and really study this parable, keep that in mind that we are a fig tree. Now, we still have to make a choice, though. And the choice that we have to make is dependent on who we are and where we are in our journey. And I, I think that's true in a lot of parables. And some of you will say, well, that's not scriptural. Parables are, are the same for everybody, but I don't think that's true, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Imagine that you are a Jew around the time, and you were listening to the story as Jesus told it. 
you're a first century Jew. The Jews would have had a real sense of immediacy about this parable. They would have had a sense of, of urgency, a sense of there's, this is our last chance. And let me tell you why. The Jews, before this point, had 3,000 years where they'd been mostly in captivity. They'd been held in captivity by the Egyptians. They were held in captivity by the Babylonians. And now, even though they're not really in captivity when Jesus comes along, they're under the rule of the Roman Empire. And so they have a hard time celebrating their traditions and, and, and celebrating their religion. And so there's this feel that they have been oppressed for 3,000 years. And all the stories they would have heard growing up would have been promises of a rescuer or a peacemaker, somebody who's going to rise up and defeat whatever empire is over the Jews, and in this case, the Roman Empire. And so I just want to take a look just a minute for a couple of verses and say, what would the ancient Jews have thought of this parable? Let's look at uh, Joel 2, first of all. If you look in the book of Joel, Joel was a prophet, and uh, he wrote about uh, a lot of his writings were, were prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. And uh, Joel 2, we're going to start with 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip down to 29. It says, sound the alarm, Jerusalem. Raise the battle cry on my holy mountain. Let everyone tremble in fear because the day of the Lord is upon us. It is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of thick clouds and deep blackness. Suddenly, 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 right? Immediately, suddenly, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a great and mighty army appears. Nothing like it has been seen before or will ever be seen again. This mighty army is going to rise up and defeat whoever's oppressing us. Skip down to verse 29. In those days, I'll pour out my spirit, even on the servants, men and women alike, and I will cause wonders in the heaven and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will become dark. The moon will turn blood red before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For some on Mount Zion and Jerusalem will escape just as the Lord had said, these will be among my survivors whom the Lord has called. So there's this sense of, okay, the day of the Lord is upon us. It's coming soon. When it comes, it's going to come suddenly. And if you are among the chosen ones, if you are the one, among the ones that God chooses to survive, you will survive. And if not, tough luck for you, right? And so the, the feeling here is one of immediacy, of finality. It, when Jesus tells this story, there's almost a sense of, this is our last chance to get it right. I'll read one more here from Ezekiel, Ezekiel 39, 25. We don't get to preach from Ezekiel very much. You know, all you hear about Ezekiel is uh, the song, right? Ezekiel cried them dry bones. You know, you learned that probably in music class in school. But Ezekiel is a prophet too, and, and it's, here's what it says. Uh, start with verse 25. So now this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will end the captivity of my people. Hey, that's what we want. I will have mercy on all Israel, for I jealously guard my holy reputation. They will accept responsibility for their past shame and unfaithfulness after they come home to live in peace in their own land with no one to bother them. That is what I want. If I'm a Jew living in the first century, that's what I want. I want my own land, my own place, no more captivity. 27, when I bring them home for the lands of their enemies, I will display my holiness among them for all the nations to see then my people will know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them away to exile and brought them home again. I will leave none of my people behind and I will never again turn my face from them for I will pour out my spirit upon the people of Israel. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. See, through these passages, there's a common thread of a rescuer is coming and there is not much time. And as a first century Jew, 
That would have been the key to that parable. There is not much time. The one year, you have one year. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be here with you. I'm going to fertilize you. I'm going to take care of you. And you have one year, figuratively. You have one year. But my people aren't Jewish, most of them. My people drive Volvos and go to soccer games and watch So You Think You Can Dance. And so what is there? Yeah, <laughs> you can't, by the way. <laughs> I don't know who you are. I'm sorry. I don't know why I said that, but most of us can't. So what is there? What is in it for us? We don't, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked the earth, so that sense of immediacy is kind of gone, isn't it? We don't, we don't have this... Most of us don't walk around the world with this sense that at any moment Jesus could come back and when that happens, that's the end for all of us, or some of us. It's the beginning for a lot of us. But what's in it for the Volvo drivers then? Well, I think if you, if you look through this parable and you look a, a little deeper, you just take the next step down, there's this idea of redemption. Redemption is, redemption is a kind of a churchy word, but to redeem something, it means taking something that's of no value and kind of changing it into something that is of value. Let me give you an example. When I was a kid, um, my mom used to collect uh, S&H green stamps. You guys remember those? Anybody remember green stamps? Yeah, all right. We got some old people in the room. Good. <laughs> S&H green stamps, for those of you who are younger than I am, um, you'd go to the grocery store, and for every dollar you spend, they'd give you so many little stamps, and they were the old kind where you had to lick the back of them. And, and you'd go, and you'd get these little booklets that were printed on kind of newsprint paper, and, and you put 50 stamps on a page. And so the stamps came in like 50s and 20s and 5s and 1s, I think. And, and you could, um, you, you, you go home after the grocery store and you get these books and you lick them and you put 50 on a page. And when you filled up so many books, you, there was a catalog that they sent out and you could exchange these stamps for things of value. You could go and redeem them for something of value. And in fact, I did a little research and Sperry and Hutchinson, the, the company that put out S&H green stamps from the 1930s, until the early 1990s they did this. And it, but they were most popular in the 1960s. And in the 60s, it, the catalog, the S&H Green Stamps catalog, was the largest publication in the United States. Can you believe that? It was larger than the Sears catalog. It was larger than Time magazine. It was the most read publication in the U.S. And during the 1960s, Sperry and Hutchinson sent out three times, printed three times as many stamps as the U.S. Postal Service. Can you believe that? So green stamps were huge. And if you just took the green stamps and you tried to take them to the grocery store and turn them in for anything, they weren't worth anything. They were really worthless. They had no cash value. But to me, they were worth something because I remember my mom, I used to go to the grocery store with her and we'd come home and we'd lick all the green stamps until we had that really bad film on our tongue, you know, and we couldn't taste anything. And you had to talk like this for the rest of the day. And we got books and just stacks and stacks of books. And I remember one time she took me to the store. There was a store downtown where you could go and redeem these. And I got a Zebco rod and reel. Yeah, buddy. I redeemed that, those stamps for something of value. So I took something that was worthless and redeemed it. I turned it into something that was valuable. In the same way, the gardener wants to redeem this fig tree. Take a tree that's of no value. I mean, really, the tree's not dead. It doesn't say it's dead. There's no indication that the tree's dead. It's just not bearing fruit. And in fact, um, the fig tree was the most valuable of all the trees at the time. And here's why. Figs, it produced typically three crops of figs in a year. A fig tree planted in the right environment will produce three crops in a year. In fact, March and April are the only two months where there wouldn't be any figs on there. And figs are valuable because you can dry them and they keep, right? Just like you dry grapes and you have raisins. And so as you're traveling across the desert, and, and we read that a lot of these groups traveled a long way, they could dry these figs and carry them with them. And, and we read of 
Um, remember Adam and Eve when they were in the garden and they re- first realized they were naked? What did they do? What did they sew together to make clothes? Fig leaves, right? And so they're valuable for their leaves, but they're most valuable for their fruit. If we read stories of King David, uh, the great king of Israel, when he would travel, it would always tell in the Bible, tell us how many fig cakes he was carrying. And he would take them and, and his, his, uh, his group of guys would eat them, but they'd also bring them as gifts. They'd bring fig cakes as gifts. And so figs were central to the Jewish culture and they were important. And the fig tree was valuable to the gardener. It was worth saving for him. So the gardener kind of becomes the champion of this fig tree. He sees its potential. He's going to build into it. He knows that the the biggest problem with this fig tree is it hasn't reached its potential yet, but he believes in the fig tree. It's so cool. So for a season, that fig tree is going to be his focus. He'll prune and shape and fertilize and water and do whatever he can to this fig tree, even when it's failing. Even when it hasn't realized its potential yet, the fig tree has a champion, someone who believes in it and believes it still has value. And maybe you're there today. Maybe you feel like you've screwed up so bad that you're beyond forgiveness. If so, first of all, we're really glad you're here. Maybe you feel like a complete failure because you can't provide for your family right now, or you have a terrible relationship with your wife, or you're caught in a pattern of sin that you just cannot escape, and maybe it was something that you did last night, or something that you did, you know, this morning, right before you came to church, and you think, there is no way out. Well, maybe there's one way out, but it's not a good one. You need to know that you have a champion, that you have a redeemer in Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter what you've done. He says, hey, if you let me, I'll take care of you. I'll focus special attention on you. You are valuable to me. See, we've all messed up at some point in our lives. We've all failed to reach our potential. But here's the good news, and it comes to us in Romans 8, 38 through 39. This is Paul writing, the Apostle Paul, and he says, And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is an amazing promise for me. I just cannot believe that no matter what I've done, it can be wiped away. When I was in school, and you guys probably heard this too, there was, an, there was this idea that when you did something wrong, it was going to go down on your permanent record. Do you remember that? And, and uh, so... I'd go and I'd get in trouble and, and the teacher said, now you got to be careful. This is going to go down on your permanent record. And I always had this, this picture of myself as an adult and I'd, I'd go to Washington, D.C. to the National Archives because I, I assume that's where they're kept. And I'd, um, I'd go up to the librarian and the 94-year-old librarian would kind of pull her glasses down and look across the desk to me and she'd go, Wallen, spitwad fight in the sixth grade? That's me. And she'd go back to the dusty archives and she'd pull this great big book with all the permanent records out and she'd hand it to me. And I would have to look at all the things I've done. And so I'm really glad that there's no permanent record in the kingdom of God, aren't you? In Psalm 130, it says this. This is from the message. If you, God, kept records on wrongdoings, who would stand a chance? As it turns out, forgiveness is your habit. And that's why you're worshipped. So maybe today, you're in a place where the lesson that you need to take from the fig tree is that you have a redeemer. You have someone who believes in you who values you, and who wants to wipe your slate clean. If you've never decided to start that relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're here today and you've never made that commitment, 
There are going to be people up here in the front after the service to talk to you about that. We would love to talk you through that and what it means for your life. But wait, there's a third choice we have to make because there are a lot of people in this room, I realize, that have already made that decision. You've already asked Christ into your life. You've already said that he's my redeemer and I'm going to accept him. I'm going to let him uh, fight for me. He's going to be my intercessor. He's going to intercede for me with God. Many people have already made that choice. And so there's a third interpretation, kind of a third decision we have to make, and it's this. Will we bear fruit? In response to what Jesus does for us, if he's going to do all this stuff, he's going to pour his life into us, he's going to water us, he's going to prune us, he's going to fertilize us, what are we going to do in response to that? What will we do for him? I think to think through that, we need to understand what it means to bear fruit. I want to tell you what fruit, what I think fruit is not from this passage. First of all, I don't think the fruit that Jesus is talking here is the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians uh, 5. The, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think I got them all. I don't know if I did or not. I don't re- remember. But um, I don't think that's it because the Scripture is pretty clear that those are the fruit that God produces in us when he sends his Holy Spirit on us. And so if God, the owner of the land, could force the tree, could make the tree produce fruit, he wouldn't want to cut the tree down, right? And so I don't think that's the fruit that they're talking about in this passage that Jesus is talking about. The second thing that I don't think fruit is, is I don't think fruit is avoiding sin. I don't think bearing fruit is the same thing as avoiding sin. And let me tell you why I think that. I'm going to give you a, a, a parable to tell you, an earthly example to describe a heavenly principle. I was, uh, I was writing this yesterday afternoon. I finished about 3 o'clock, 3.30, 4 o'clock, something like that. And I, I w- was walking, going for a walk around my neighborhood, and uh, my neighbor pulls up in his SUV with his mountain bike on the back, and he says, hey, Steve, I'm going mountain biking. You want to go? I was like, yeah. Well, I mean, I just got back from Daytona, and, and I, I need to spend time with my family, but I've been looking for an excuse to get out on my bike, and, and probably, since it's you, Mike, my wife won't mind me going. And so I went in and asked, and she said, yeah, go, go, it's fine. And so I grabbed my mountain bike, grabbed my clothes, got everything, went in. And, and I was reminded when I got there, by the way, whenever I go mountain biking, first of all, I don't really like to talk about mountain biking too much because um, if my wife, Benita, ever saw me mountain biking, she would insist that I get more life insurance. And um, it would be way too expensive for me to go mountain biking. So I don't go very often anyway. Um, but I'm reminded every time I go mountain biking of some principles that I learned probably 12 or 13 years ago when I first started in the sport. See, I wanted to race mountain bikes when I was uh, in my 20s, and uh, I wasn't very good at it. And so I had a friend that was a lot better than me, and he took me out uh, on some trails a couple days, and he taught me some of the principles. And, and the thing that I struggled with the most was I would be riding down a trail, and the, idiot, I mean, the uh, guys who designed these trails... They always put like rocks right in the middle of the trail or they'll, they'll build them to go over a tree stump or a giant tree root or in the trail we went to last night, they put stacks of logs like this high in the middle of the trail. It's, it's not easy to bike over that stuff. And so, but when, when you come up on a tree stump or, or a root, I always tried to go around it and no matter how hard I tried, I could, I could try to lean to the left or lean to the right or turn my handlebars or whatever. And for some reason, I always ended up running right over that same stupid stump. And so my, I was talking to my friend. I said, how do you do that? How do you avoid those every time? And he says, well, let me watch you. And so he watched me go, and I, I went, and I tried to turn to the left, and I ended up, my front tire hit the stump, and I could bounce over it, you know, and it's not real comfortable. And she so said, where are your eyes? What are you looking at? Well, that's a stupid question. I'm looking at the tree stump that I don't want to hit. You know, right in the, it's right in the middle of the trail. What can you look at? He says, no, no, no. 
what you want to do, if you want to avoid the stump, don't look at the stump. What you want to do is you want to pick your line, look at the trail, and look where you're going to go. He says, because your body will follow your eyes. And so if you're looking at the stump, it doesn't matter what you try to do, your body's going to go right over top of that stump. But if you look at the, the path around the stump, you're going to miss it every time. And so I thought about that, and I thought, man, sin is so much like that. When, when, we, when we think about not sinning, we think about that sin that we don't want to do, right? So we go, no, 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 don't look at that, don't touch that, don't eat that, don't do that, don't watch that. And that's what we're thinking, and we're focused on that, that, that. And while we're focused on it, we're, we're headed right towards it. But if we focus on what we want to do instead of what we don't want to do, where we want to go instead of where we don't want to go, it's a lot easier. And so I realized that when, when Jesus talked to people, when he met people, encountered people in the street, he rarely told them not to sin. Now, there were times um, where he ran into somebody and he'd tell them, go and sin no more. But typically what he'd say was, go and do. Want to get in the kingdom of God? Drop everything you own and follow me. Want to come in? Sell everything you own and give it to the poor. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Watch, wash each other's feet. See, these are the things that Jesus wants us to do right here on earth if we're his followers, and you can divide most of these uh, commands into two categories, give and serve. These are the fruits that the gardener expects us to bear. We need to understand this. Why was the fig tree valuable to the owner of the land? Because it could produce fruit that he could leverage to build the garden. The owner valued the tree because he values the fruit. Without the fruit, the tree is of no use. It just takes up space in the garden and looks pretty. But the fruit helps him expand the kingdom. The fruit is valuable. So we are called to give and to serve, not out of guilt or obligation, but in response to the extravagant mercy of the gardener who interceded for us, who became our champion. He laid it all out for us, and I think it's so ironic and not at all accidental that Jesus uses the tree to describe us because he as the gardener eventually gave his life hanging on a dead tree for us. He gave up his life so we could have ours, and not responding to that, not being blown away by the undeserved grace is our biggest sin. Not giving and not serving is a slap in the face to the gardener who interceded for us. But here's what I notice. The longer I choose, I serve, choose to serve my Savior, when I try to bless him or try to bless others by giving or by serving, it doesn't work. I'm the one that ends up getting blessed. It's like this for everyone I know. Uh, when, when I was first challenged to tithe, I was at, at another church, and I was challenged to tithe, and um, I just didn't feel, I wasn't feeling it, man. And I, uh, I fell back on this verse. I said, you, you know, and I, I, I explained this to my wife because she felt like we should, and as, as always, she was right. Um, but I fell back on this passage that says, each man should give whatever he's desired into his, in his heart to give because God loves a cheerful giver. And my excuse was that, hey, I cannot be cheerful about giving away 10% of everything that I make. I am not going to be cheerful about that. But I realized that God wasn't trying to, to have me be cheerful about, or God wasn't trying to have me give what I was cheerful about. He was trying to make me be cheerful about my ability to give. I have a friend that, that started tithing, and, and uh, he realized that somehow, some way, it always worked out. And it didn't matter what happened, but like, um, he would give us, you know, he, he realized that he only had a, a couple hundred dollars for the week and he had some bills due and he had a, a $300 bill due, for instance. And, and he said, just, okay, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to give my tithe. And he wrote that check on Sunday and he put it in the offering bag. And then on Monday, he checks the mail and there's like a, a refund from the escrow on his mortgage for the amount of his tithe. 
And so it's like God replenished it right back. And he, he said, I couldn't believe it would, get, would happen, but every time I did that, it just, God kept blessing me with this stuff, even though I was trying to bless him. It's not, this is not a promise of financial blessing for you, but it's a blessing nonetheless. I remember um, when I came back from Big Stuff Camp last year, um, they had a big thing on Compassion International, and I decided to adopt a child from, through Compassion. You know, you can sponsor a child for, for 40 bucks a month, 30 bucks a month, whatever it is. And I started to do that, and I thought, well, I'm going to bless this little child, and this little child's going to grow up, and, and it's going to be because of me, and I'm going to be so great, and she's going to worship me. And, and then I get these little letters from the child about how great God is and how amazing it is that she, gets, she went to Easter and she got to worship her Savior. And I went, this is not about me at all. This is not about me at all. I'm the one being blessed. At, at Big Stuff this week, um, I was at Big Stuff Camp. I'll tell you a little more about that in a minute. But, yeah, we took, a, we took 10 teenagers to Big Stuff Camp this week in Daytona Beach, Florida. You can go ahead and cheer for that now if you want. But don't, not for us. They are pretty excited about it. You couldn't tell. We had at least four of our students, 15 to 17 years old, at least four of our students decided to sponsor a child for 32 bucks a month where they picked up a packet and they said, this child needs this money more than I do. And they've never met this child in a different part of the world where they've never been. But they were so excited just with the opportunity to make a difference. It's the same for me with serving. I know last, uh, two weeks ago we had the chance, Genesis partnered with Deer Creek Community Church and we served with this, this Faith, Hope, and Love International. We went into the Southwest Quadrant and we, we, we did a lot of service projects um, to, to, and got a chance to talk to people about Jesus and, and it was great. And um, if you go over there now, this house, I got a chance to, to help side, put vinyl siding on this house and uh, it's done, and it's over there. It's at 7th and Washington Street if you drive by it. It was asbestos, shingle siding. You know, it was gray and kind of looked like fake brick, and, and uh, we put this siding up in a week. Uh, I say we. I was there for a day, and, you know, anyway. But um, I, I, the, as in the afternoon, the owner came home. The owner of the house came home and was watching us put up the siding, and, and she looked at me, and she said, I know you. I know you. And I went, Corky? And this lady... This lady was, um, she worked at Pizza Hut for 25 years. She was a waitress at Pizza Hut. And um, I had some friends of mine from work that went over there every Thursday for like 12 years at least. We went to Pizza Hut. And uh, Corky was almost always our server. And I was, I was nailing the siding to the wall and I just turned to, to Ben Krause and I said, Ben, this is amazing to me because this woman served me for 12 years. And here I am, I get a server for one day. And he said, uh, Ben's got a pretty good sense of humor. So he looked at me and he says, so, after today, you're calling it even, right? <laughs> See, we can't serve Jesus halfway. If God is working in our lives, if Jesus has become our champion and we are responding to that, we can't be part in and part out. We can't say, well, I'll serve on every third Sunday, but uh, I'm going to drop my microphone. We'll serve on every third Sunday, but don't ask me anymore. We can't say, well, I already play guitar in the band once a month, and so that's how I serve the church, and so I'm really doing my part. We can't feel, we shouldn't feel, like I often do, like I have done enough. Let someone else use their gifts for a change. There's a great story that Jesus tells about what it means to have the heart of a servant in Luke 17. He says, uh, Luke 17, verse 7, when a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, come on in and eat with me? No, he says, Prepare my meal, put on your apron, and serve me while I eat. Then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. And I look at that and I just go, God, 
What are you trying to work in me? What are you trying to do to me? Why are you, you, you're trying to change my heart and make me into a servant. That song we did to open this message is one of my favorites, The Wonderful Cross, and um, the, most of it comes from an old hymn that was written by Isaac Watts in 1707 called uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And there's a, there's a line in there that says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And what that means is if I had the whole, all of nature, if I own the whole world to give back to God, that's not enough. Because his love is so amazing that he requires everything that I am, my soul, my life, my all in return. And if we are followers of Jesus, that's how we should be. We need to lay down our, our whole life for him. I, uh, I did go to Big Stuff this week, and um, a lot of you know, if you've talked to me, that I was pretty anxious about the trip. This is my fourth year going to Big Stuff, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of reasons that I was anxious about it. First of all, I loathe the state of Florida. I believe that it was God's first attempt at creation, and it wasn't perfect, and so he, he then created Indiana after that. Um, and he said, we're going to do it without all the humidity and the mosquitoes and the people with their left turn signal on, and we're going to try it again. So that was one thing. And then there were a lot of logistics. We decided this year we were going to Daytona Beach, but instead of flying into Daytona Beach, which was a lot more expensive, we were going to fly into Orlando and rent a couple minivans and drive over to Daytona Beach. So we were going to have 14 kids with 14 seats and 14 suitcases, and it was going to be about a two-hour drive, which is still better than the 14-hour drive we had to Panama City a couple years ago. But still, we're taking all these kids. We had just enough seats. What happens if we get to the rental car place and they don't have minivans and they try to give us a Chevy Impala or something to fit seven kids in? and, And then... Then we've got to go and, and get there and get checked into the hotel, and the kids are going to be bored because they don't have anything to do. And then we get there, and it rained every day during our free time. There was no time to be out in the sun, and I'm less tan now than when I left. And it's all about saving seats at Big Stuff. The number one thing to do is just to get there as early as you can so you end up standing in line. And there's somebody, I saw a guy that had saved 40 seats with a flip-flop and a pair of sunglasses. I am not kidding. And so this stuff goes on, and, and I'm just like, every year, I'm like, I am never going back there. I, there is no way they can drag me there. And this, this year, I wasn't going to go, but the kids said, no, no, you got to go. It wouldn't be the same without you. And so I went. And on the last night, they unpacked the entire story of God from the beginning to the end. And, and one of our little girls, eighth, uh, a freshman, stood up and, and accepted Christ for the first time in her life. And then, yeah. <laughs> and it was cool, and then I... I looked, down the, I looked down the line of, of these kids, and we're there with 10 kids and four adults, and, and uh, after they do the, the, the kind of altar call, I guess you could call it that, it's not really that anymore, but um, they, they have a whole, like, a, an hour-long set of worship, and I look down the line, and there's kids standing on chairs and raising their arms, and they're crying, and there's tears going down their face, and they're, they're just in love with the Lord, and I go, God, this is, it's all worth it now, it's all worth it, and then we got back up to our room, and we had, like, an hour of, of we're supposed to have a half an hour of group time where we do a small group study and then 45 minutes of free time. And nobody wanted to do the free time. Everybody wanted to do their small group time. And finally, I turned to the, the little girl that had accepted Christ and I said, you know what? If you want to be baptized, the Atlantic Ocean's right out there. I will go out and baptize you right now. And she's like, no, I don't think I, don't think I want to do that. And one of the girls held up her hand. She said, I do. She said, I, you know, I, I didn't make a decision today, but I've already accepted Christ, but I've never been baptized and I want to be baptized. Will you baptize me? And I said, No. Uh, no, that's not what I said at all. I said, 
yeah, let's go. And so people are like, oh, yeah. So everybody goes into the room, and they start getting their swimsuits on, and they get their clothes on, and I, I stop everybody and go, guys, 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 guys. It's 1.30 in the morning, and we're in a hotel. So I know you're all excited. We've got to be really quiet going down the stairs. And so they did. They all got their little quiet voices on, and we kind of tiptoed through the hall, and we took the elevator, and we went down there. And we got out on the beach, and, and the ocean's coming in, and, and uh, I baptized this girl, and everybody's cheering and clapping, and somebody else goes, I want to be baptized. And... <laughs> We baptized seven kids in the Atlantic Ocean while we were there. Yeah, I know. And, and this whole trip, I'm thinking about, well, gosh, isn't it great of me that I get to serve? Isn't it great of me that I'm serving God? Isn't it great that I'm serving these kids? And no way, man, because when I came back, I was the one that was blessed with that. I got to see that. I got to be a part of that. And I just, my prayer afterwards was, God, why do you let me be a part of this? You could do this without me. How come you need me? Why, what have I done to deserve to get to be a part of this? And I'll close with this. Um, Francis Chan, who's probably become my favorite pastor now, was speaking there, and he, he mentioned this. He said, you know, there are, there are a lot of people in this room that would like to have that chance, that would like to go to big stuff. In fact, I know because I had probably 10 people come up to me and said, do you need another chaperone before you go? A lot of us would like to be a part of that story. But Jesus says that to someone who's faithful with little things, they'll be given more. And some of us would love to go to Big Stuff Camp, but we won't give up an hour a week to serve the kids that are right here in the children's ministry to teach them about Jesus. Some of us would love to, to go on an overseas mission trip to Ukraine or to Haiti or, or someplace like that, but we won't take a vacation day to help our neighbor paint their house who can't afford to do it themselves. Some of us would love to, to help build a house for Habitat for Humanity but we won't give a little bit of money to the, to the people that we see around us, to the homeless man that's sitting on the street that doesn't have a home to live in. See, here's the thing. We are not wired to serve. It's not in our human flesh to want to serve. And so to do this and do it with the heart that God asks of us, we need to do all we can to set our flesh aside. And I'm not using these examples of my service to make you think that I'm a great servant or that I'm better than you or I'm holier than you. Please don't hear that because the truth is I got a long way to go. I got a long way to go. But we need to move ourselves out of the way and let God work inside of us. So then we're free to give and we're free to serve and to feel good about it because we're doing it in response to the love of Jesus Christ and not out of obligation or out of some idea that, that we're going to be better if we serve. There's a great story in, in Second Chronicles in the Old Testament and, and Solomon who is the, the wisest man who ever lived, the richest man who ever lived, is building the temple to God. And it's the first time that the Israelis have ever built a temple. And um, it's a place where anybody can go and worship and where they expect God is going to physically dwell in this temple. <clears throat> and so Second uh, Chronicles chapter 5 and 6 goes into great detail about the furnishings that are put in the temple and, and, and you know, how much gold and silver went into it. And this, they build this giant sea that's like a big basin out of gold and silver and and uh, it's, it's as big as this room. And, and the, the Bible goes into great detail about how much goes into the temple. And then it's, there's a story about the day they open the temple and they open the doors to the people. And it says in, the, in, the, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 that the temple, on the day it opened, the temple was so filled with the glory of God that there was no room for the priests to come in. The glory of God so filled that place that the people couldn't physically walk in the building. 
Imagine what a sight this was to see. This temple, newly constructed for God, everybody's excited to go, and they can't even walk in the door. Imagine if the church invited the Holy Spirit into its presence every week and moved its own human wants and needs and desires and passions and pursuits and agendas and preferences and opinions and flaws out of the way to make room for God's glory to fill this place. Now imagine if, if we did the same thing, if I did the same thing in my life. Imagine if I moved my desires, my sins, and my flaws so far to the side that I made room for God's glory to fill me up so perfectly and completely that in the end, there was no room for me. How cool would that be? Would you pray with me? Lord God, we need you in this place today. Um, we thank you that you sent someone to intercede for us, that you sent a gardener to, uh, <laughs> to be our champion. And uh, we just thank you so much for the people who are here that, it's, that decided to make that decision uh, recently or a long time ago or whenever it was that they decided that they needed you to be their champion. And Lord, I know that there are people in this place right now that are, are, that are still struggling with that, that haven't made that decision. But they're so broken, God, and they need something, somebody to give them some hope. Would you just give them courage and uh, wisdom to, to make that choice today? Lord, we'll be up at the front um, for people, and could you send people our way who desperately need you in their lives? We love you, and we thank you for being here today. In Jesus' name, amen.